Hello and welcome to Fire Away, Rudner Law's online Q&A show focused on the employment law issues that matter to you. My name is Stuart Rudner. I'm an employment lawyer and mediator and your host of Fire Away. Just a reminder, Fire Away streams live online every month. Past episodes are available on YouTube, on our Facebook page, and on our website. If you are watching live and have any questions, we'd be happy to answer them. So please either post a comment on Facebook or YouTube or tweet to at Rudner Law. As usual, we have a guest today. Today, we're joined by Eric Poiré. Eric is the Health, Safety, and Environment Advisor and Investigative Consultant, as well as being the Founder and Director of Argus Research Group. And our topic today is investigations, what investigation means, what policies and procedures should be in place, what do you do at the end of the investigation, what do you do with the results, and how do you move forward? And we're probably going to get into that and a whole lot of other issues regarding investigations. So let's get to it. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on Fire Away. Uh, thank you, Stuart. Appreciate the invite. It's an honor to be on Fire Away with you today. Uh, I, uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion. We've known each other for a little while. I know that uh, you like doing investigations and I know you do a good job and you take it very seriously. Uh, our theme today is so you have to conduct an investigation, which is often, you know, words that HR folks dread hearing. Uh, and especially in the last couple of years, investigations have become a huge part of HR and employment law. I can tell you, I, many viewers will know this already, I lead a course uh, put on by Osgood Professional Development. The course is called HR Law for HR Professionals. It's a five-day certificate course. And when I first designed that course about a dozen years ago, investigations were a footnote of one small section of that course. They're now one entire day out of five. So that just gives you an idea of how important it is for organizations to get it right. Uh, and at the same time, I'd also mention my book, Fire, um, You're Fired, uh, where we talk about just cause for dismissal. And I've seen, I read every single just cause decision. And I see the judges and the arbitrators over and over again, looking at what was done in order to investigate before steps were taken, before dismissal was undertaken. And if there wasn't a proper investigation, courts are extremely, extremely critical. Uh, and the last thing I'll mention before Eric, I, uh, we get to you, in my mediation practice, I'm seeing a lot more disputes these days where either there was no investigation and because of that, the plaintiff is seeking additional damages or there was an investigation, but it was really a prosecution in all but name where the decision was made before they even started. Uh, so there's a lot of ways that employers can get it wrong. Uh, but let's take a step back. Uh, Eric, from your perspective, when are investigations required or when are they advisable? Anytime, uh, anytime where there's a non-compliance issue or there's a suspected or an alleged non-compliance issue with respect to any sort of policies, procedures that the company has in place, um, any sort of legislative requirements, and um, um, any perceived um, I guess, um, allegations or a thought of any sort of fraud in the workplace or employee misconduct. Um, they, I'll just give an example, I guess, with respect to, let's say, a company vehicle or a company or a property. Um, you have a company vehicle, then the company's got to have a policy or should have a policy in place with respect to how um, that employee conducts themselves and how they operate that vehicle. Um, any sort of reporting procedures with respect to any uh, motor vehicle collisions that they may or may not get into. Um, their conduct and behavior while operating this vehicle on and off the job site. Um, you can get into um, a, a myriad of 
um, situations that put the company at risk uh, with respect to having that employee um, being responsible for that vehicle on the road. You're looking at Highway Traffic Act violations. You're looking at um, you're looking at a, like a really big PR symbol, basically, essentially for the company being on the road. And if there's any sort of incident, um, whether if it's not reported and the company doesn't know about it, and then it comes back a few years later, or let's say 16 months or 18 months later, and the company gets a notice that they're you know they're being served with uh, with a document saying that um, they're being sued or there's there's some there's legal action being taken against them as a result of a vehicle that comes up or was discovered that that they owned, but they no longer have this employee there, then you know they're stuck investigating and trying to figure out um, what happened there. If they don't have a, if they have a policy in place and it wasn't followed, and they can track that vehicle back to the employee, then they could sort of look into that. But if that was if um, if they can't get a hold of that employee, then they're stuck with that risk and that liability there. So it's important to understand that and educate them on property, company property and the policies and procedures that are related to it that meet or exceed the legislative requirements that relate to that operation. So that's just one aspect of it. And then you've got, uh, let's say, fraud, for example, or you know, they're, they're paid for a certain amount of time and they don't show up, but that's not monitored. You know, you, those are things that are very serious, but if they're not investigated properly and we don't do our due diligence to support the, the investigation with proper facts and documentation, um, trying to dismiss that individual, although it is a very serious situation, trying to dismiss them if we don't have those facts in place, it could come back to us and, um, and not be favorable for the employer with respect to any sort of due diligence defense. Yeah. That's a critical point. And I know, you know, speaking for myself and probably for the entire employment law bar, uh, one of the things that we find incredibly frustrating is we'll have an employer client call and say, you know, we need to fire so-and-so or even worse, we've already fired so-and-so. Uh, and when we ask them for the documentation in support of whatever they are alleged to have done, there's nothing. Uh, and so we have to then educate our clients on the risks of going forward. But to your point, they should have had po proper policies in place and procedures in place uh, to gather data because, you know, investigation now, it's like, you know, HR is horrified when they hear the word because they think it's going to be this long, expensive, extensive procedure. And sometimes it will be, but in many cases, it, it might involve just a brief re review of documents. It might involve a brief interview of two people and uh, an email summarizing the findings. So investigations can take many forms. And I want to come back to that with you, Eric. But to your point, there needs to be some documentation. And even if the employee is long gone, I've also had uh, employers who say, oh, well, I know we should investigate, but the person's gone. So I guess we're off the hook now, right? And, and of course, the answer is no, especially if there was an allegation of harassment. And that's where you know, we're seeing a lot of investigations, and especially in Ontario under Bill 132, there's an absolute duty to investigate any allegation or even suspicion of harassment. And yet I still have employers who will call and say, you know, after I explain to them that they have that duty, that they must investigate, I'll get a call back with a triumphant you know, call say, from the employer saying, great news, you know, the complainant left. So I guess we're off the hook now. Uh, and I explained, no, A, legally, you still have to investigate. B, even if you didn't, you have an entire workforce that's still there. And if you have a harasser, you still need to deal with this. Um, so these are all, all parts of the policies and procedures, but also training. People just need to understand when they need to investigate and, and the fact they can't just ignore things 
even if the person is gone or there's no policy in place. Yeah. And I completely respect the, um, I, I completely respect that. And, and to that point, having that training and part of what I like to do is to, to help them be proactive with that. Like, let's identify what your policies and procedures were or what they can be before we get into um, any, any, any further activity with the business, especially when it comes to a, a harassment allegations, bullying, intimidation. Mm -hmm. um, address it immediately, pull those people aside, collect it. It could just be, you know, a simple conversation one-on-one -on -one saying, hey, you know what, this is part of our policies. Maybe you missed it. Let's just have a talk and we'll make sure it's documented. So that way you're, you're doing your due diligence there and then moving forward, if it happens again with that same individual or the same individuals, you can come back to that conversation you had previously and move ahead with it and find solutions to those problems. If it's, an, it's just an outright um, uh, blatant disregard for that previous conversation that you had and those policies and procedures that are in place, again, it, it could be very serious and it is very serious, but it still needs to be handled very delicately and documented properly. You can't just say, well, um, or you shouldn't, I, you shouldn't just say, well, you know, this was, you know, this is a huge violation of the, the rules. It's a cardinal rule violation. You're gone. And yeah. then and I know the title of our show is fire away, but in that context, you need to proceed with caution. Uh, yeah. you're absolutely right about that. And it's funny because I'm doing a pre uh, seminar on Friday, uh, with some colleagues at an HR firm and it's called the art and law of feedback. And it's all about what you're talking about now, the need to, to give feedback but also document uh, because again, it's the worst possible scenario is when we're called upon to assist a client and assess, you know, do they have just cause to fire someone? And I go through the file and all I see are the annual reviews, which say meets expectations and nothing else. So documenting and, and just to take a step back. So we're talking about investigations. You've given a few examples, uh, but there's so much of a mis misunderstanding out there as to what it means. And a lot of people think investigation means something that will cost them tens of thousands of dollars and people for months and months. But maybe you can explain you know, what, what is an investigation and perhaps more importantly, what's the purpose of the investigation? Why, why are people doing them? Well, in it, from my experience, they're related to an incident or an event, uh, whether they're planned or unplanned. Um, they're, it's a response to figure out and to discover facts with respect to that incident and things that surround that. So whether they're environmental factors, they're personal factors, or they're things that are beyond our control, but it's things that we need to fully understand in order to collect the facts and, uh, and really provide, um, I call it an intelligence profile to, to our customers or, the, or to the client and let them know um, what the reality is of this, of, of, of the incident or the event that occurred, whether it was a harassment incident or a motor vehicle incident, collect the information, um, gather that evidence, create the intelligence for them so that they clearly understand what transpired in that event in that moment. And then they can make that decision on what they're going to do there. Um, yeah. And that's perfect. And that's, you know, we can work together is you know often what will happen is an employer suspects misconduct they suspect that they have somebody who took product out of the warehouse or there's an allegation or a complaint of harassment being made so the first step is figure figure out what actually happened and that's exactly what you're describing you would come in do the investigation reach a conclusion which is one of my pet peeves is, is investigations that end with a i cannot reach a conclusion it's a credibility issue so you've got to reach a conclusion 
And then once that conclusion has been reached and you find, for example, that the person did engage in misconduct, then it falls to me to advise the client as to what the next steps are and what their legal rights are based upon those facts. Before we can give a proper opinion as to what the client's rights and obligations are, we need you to reach that conclusion as to what actually happened. And one of the things I, I mentioned, I wanted to come back to because, and you know, we often see a lot of amateur investigations, uh, probably more of a pet peeve for you than for me, although it's, it's, it frustrates me as well. Uh, because often, especially, you know, in the, I guess we're now in the post Me Too era, uh, a lot of allegations of harassment, and I still see harassment investigation reports that conclude with, this is purely a matter of credibility, and I cannot reach a conclusion as to what happened. Uh, how do you handle investigations where it's really a, a, a classic he said she said that that comes down um that's difficult actually that's a very unique situation to to navigate um so i guess i'll sort of pretext that with you know we'll get the employer that will ask us for example um and uh, i'll make that clear right away at the onset is are you wanting a set of recommendations we can provide that if they don't want it then we'll just simply provide them a conclusion with respect to a unique situation like that, um, it goes down to how the interviews um, are really conducted. Um, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here when I discuss this, but the interviews are key and crucial and super critical with respect to gaining really good information. And if that interview um, with, um, whether it's the alleged um, or the, uh, the, the victim, um, if they're not conducted properly, then you could really obtain information that um, is so convoluted that it doesn't support the case that you're looking for. Often, some people are looking for an admission as opposed to looking for the truth. They already have a set idea in mind with respect to what they want the outcome to be. But that's not the mindset we need to be in when we're doing an interview or an investigation with an individual. We're looking at trying to approach it with a fair opportunity to respond and to be able to provide us with the truth and the information there. That will help determine um, culpability and non-culpability. However, it's hard to decide if you don't have any sort of you know, video evidence, um, if you don't have any uh, position evidence with respect to that allegation. It's hard to make that decision, but that's where the interview comes in. Um, doing a really good investigative interview could be could be the key to unlocking that truth and providing and supporting the argument that you're going to make with respect to your recommendations. At the end of the day, those pe people that are in charge of making those higher end decisions are going to take that and make that decision on their own, whether it's going to be um, at, under the advice of legal or their own their own choices. But the interview, I think, in my mind, with respect to um, your question there, is key to really understanding that and being fair and impartial during that interview. More of a conversation management style, cognitive, um, building that rapport, making sure you've got that trust, you're totally respectful, and you're not making any assumptions or allegations during the interview is very, very crucial. Yeah, no, that's a great summary and really helpful. And I've heard you know stories about investigations that are entirely biased. I've also heard of stories about uh, interviews that are essentially you know, interrogations as opposed to interviews, where there's a mindset and a predetermined outcome, and they're just trying to get the admission uh, and essentially bullying the person into saying what they want them to say. 
Uh, and that's usually when it's someone who's not trained in investigating. It's, you know, it's, a, it's the owner of the company who goes in and meets with the person without any training as to how to do it. Uh, and that's usually when it gets to my desk. Uh, and that's the worst case scenarios are where a company that suspects misconduct acts hastily, either they fire the person or they have a sham of an, of an investigation, then fire the person, and then they face a wrongful dismissal claim. And at the end of the day, they end up on the hook for not only severance, but bad faith damages, as well as their legal costs and everything else. So it costs them sometimes two or three times what it would have cost them just to let the person go without cause because of the way they conducted themselves. Um, so I wanted to bring this back, I guess, to, to Beth, uh, because I think you can teach a lot of our viewers as to what should and should not happen in an investigation. Uh, so maybe as a, at a general level, what would you say are some of the most important things that, um, that people should bear in mind before they conduct an investigation? Uh, consider all the possibilities first and foremost. Um, you, you've, you've been made aware of an allegation or an incident that occurred. Um, don't don't approach it with a, a blame idea uh, with, with the blame mindset don't be myopic either uh, so consider all those possibilities on where the aggravating factors the possibilities the people involved uh, the whether it's uh, you know let's say a, a, a big job site equipment involved the whatever is there the environment consider that and make sure you understand that and collect that information prior to going into it um, it's super important to, 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 to approach that questioning period um, and have a planned outcome. Um, and I don't see, like not a planned objective, because right. you want that truth, but a planned procedure, right. uh, sort of um, checks and balances that you understand that you need to follow. And if something sort of veers off course, then, then you can bring that back in and you don't go off topic with them. Like you want to stick to the point and not get, not get trapped into um, being, um, I guess, pulled into the story that they want you to to follow, right? So it's it's hard. Like it's hard. I completely get it. It's hard from an employer's perspective to to go in because they have their business to run, and I get that. And it's uncomfortable to have somebody come in whether it's the hr or the the managers come in and do an investigation sort of disrupt that workplace environment but it's super important to make it comfortable for them and not to get trapped in in an idea that they want you to follow you have a plan and procedure in place follow those checks and balances and stay on target and not get influenced by somebody else's um, um, preconceived notions and biases uh, with respect to a specific individual or working environment or a place that they're working in. I don't, I, I don't mean, like, I'm not saying not to have those risk assessments done with respect to those specific environments, mm -hmm. but just take those into consideration and don't, don't allow that to, to force your judgment in any way. In terms of logistics, do you typically write out a script for, of questions before you start the interview? I like to, I like to. Um, and depending on the style of interview that we're that we're going into, um, I like to use the like I said a, a cognitive style interview. Um, so I like to have it sort of free flowing and have a monologue and dialogue sort of set out and and continue that and just allow the the individual or the the the, the interviewer to speak. Um, that's where you get all the information. Uh, I'm not um, and again, there's every. Every interview is unique and every investigation requires a specific type of interview that goes in. Um, 
the ones that I've been mostly involved in are the cognitive style. And that's where they reveal quite a bit of information. You build that rapport with them. And there's a time and a place for these sort of direct questions to sort of prompt and challenge them on evidence that you've already collected um, to, to ensure um, to either A, prove your theory or disprove that allegation or the theory. But there's that's a time- That's a really interesting that. point. Uh, I think a lot of people assume that like, the investigation is a linear process. You interview person A, person B, person C, person D, and then you reach a conclusion. Uh, my one of the piece of advice I often give our clients if they're doing the investigation is there's nothing wrong with going back. So if you know if the complainant says that an incident happened in the lunchroom on April 28th, and you meet with the accused, and the accused says I was on vacation that day, there's nothing wrong. And in fact, you probably should go back to the complainant and, and put that to them. Uh, but how do you handle things like that? I'm pretty straightforward with that. I, I, I say that I need to speak with that other individual. And look, like there's some investigations or interviews that I've been in where they've lasted four hours. And during that time, it's been the interviewee talking the entire time. And I'm finding out that there were many more witnesses that were present during that period. Um, some employers and, 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 and clients don't want to hear, hey, I got to see, you know, another six witnesses to really determine what happened here at this location. Um, and some are some, you know, some are very, very cooperative, and some are just like, no, we just want to, we want to know what your recommendations are with respect to this one individual. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's a, it's a fine line because you know part of your duty or part of the expectation as an investigator is that you are thorough, which means reviewing all the relevant documents, interviewing the relevant witnesses, uh, but it doesn't mean going on and talking to everybody. Uh, no. And the perfect example, I'll kind of put it to you as a question. If you meet with someone who's accused of you know, sexual harassment, for example, and they say, oh, you've got to talk to Jim, Mary, Sally, et cetera, they will tell you that I would never do anything like that. Uh, would you bother meeting with those people? Yes. Um, that's just a classic, like an affirmation. Um, uh, and that gets into the investigative interviewing styles. Um, there's there's certain behavior that uh, that you can see and there's certain ways that people answer questions like with respect to that if that was a specific incident then yes i would want to speak to those people um and simply because of the severity of a sexual harassment case um you really want to make sure you've got that stuff dialed in narrowed down and your facts are really put together there in that specific case, yes, I would absolutely want to speak to these people. Um, it sort of sets uh, sets a tone for the character in the background, and right. uh, it it is surprising and revealing when you get people talking on on how much information comes out. I mean, and it's interesting. And the, I ask you that I have to admit, expecting a different answer because I've had a, no, a number of investigators say, "No, we don't." You know, if it's a purely character witness, if they don't have nothing relevant to say about the incident in question. I won't do it. Uh, but like a lot of things, and I'm going to ask you about notes in a minute, different investigators, different approaches. Uh, now, I, at some point, if you had a list of 17 character witnesses, would you meet all of them or would you kind of cut that off at some point? I would sort of sit down with the, whoever the client is and ask them, what do you want to do? Like, and, but give them the basis and, and who, if, you know, they're privy to the outcome or the, the information that was revealed during that initial interview and discuss that with them and look at the options. Um, and again, this is, sexual harassment is a pretty severe, um, uh, a pretty serious investigation that needs to take place. I want to be sure and make sure that if they're not involved, then we've checked that box and we've, we've, we've made that happen and uh, we've done it properly. 
but if they are involved, <clears throat> it's, it warrants further discussion, right? So it's, yeah. I guess it's unique. Like you, you can say yes and no. Um, do you want to waste all that time? I personally would put that up to the employer, but I wouldn't be, um, I, I, I wouldn't hesitate to, to bring up that, that recommendation to say, look, maybe you should probably look at this, um, but let's think about it a bit more, discuss it, dial it in and figure out who we want to talk to first. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's a really good answer. And it kind of gets back to a point I often make. Uh, and when, when I get a chance to, uh, to fire away in a few minutes, one of the points I'm going to make is, is having a very clear investigation plan is important. Uh, but part of that is going to be that you have to adapt. So when you meet, you know, anybody you meet with, they're going to hopefully give you names of relevant witnesses. They're going to provide you with documents. You're going to have to review all those and you're going to adjust your plan accordingly. So I think that's such a great answer to say, you know, if I get all these names of people, I'll assess whether there's some merit in meeting with them. I'll meet with the client, see what they want to do. Uh, because you have to have a plan, but, but it's got to be adaptable. Um, one thing I wanted to come to, and, and then we're, we're kind of almost almost running out of time already because these things just fly by. Uh, but the other area where I get, you know, everyone has their own approach or, or perspective is note taking. Uh, so I know some people insist that they hand rate all their notes. Some people bring a laptop. Some people will bring an audio recorder or it might just be their phone. Some people like video recorders. Uh, what's your preference in terms of recording the interviews? Whatever, whatever they're, the customer is going to want. I, I'm comfortable doing either one. Of course, um, with with respect to the um, um, you know the approval of the interviewee um, and the confidentiality and the privacy reasons, if they allow or they agree to a video recording with audio, that's probably one of the best ones that you're going to get. Um, video doesn't lie. The reactions there, everything's documented verbatim. But if they don't agree with it, then we have to resort to other other uh, methods, which is I like to write verbatim um, and then have them review it and um, initial and sign each page. Make sure it's all de dated and signed and and uh, they fully understand that, you know, this statement is going to be at some point or can be at some point um, reviewed for legal purposes. So, um, you know, it, it it becomes a very serious document that uh, that is going to be questioned. So. Um, verbatim is always the best in the in 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 the words of the interviewee, and then get to sign and check that. Um, you can type it too. Um, I mean, typing it it doesn't give it the same authenticity to me. Some people love it. Um, how do you get them to check that and make them copies and, and initial mistakes and that sort of thing? Um, well, I mean, I've had people. I mean, look, I know personally uh, that. If I was to handwrite things, I would never be able to read it later on. So for me, that would be a non-starter. Yeah. Um, but I like to handwrite it and then, and then transcribe it into a typer, uh, into a typed method for the client, yeah. which makes sense. But I know some people who also use a laptop, but they will, you know, while the person is still there, they will print every page and have the person mark it up, sign it, initial it, etc. So to, to to your point, but you want to have that done before the person leaves. Yeah, and you want to decide that before that conversation happens, right? You want to make sure that um, that individual um, agrees to it, and that's what the client wants. And you just you go from there, and that's a pre that's a predetermined sort of um, method of documenting the interviews. All right. Well, sorry about that. That's what happens when you try to live stream your show uh, while Windows continues updating on my PC. We're now back up and ready to go. They can try to silence us, Eric, but we will persevere. So thank you for your patience. Not a problem. Not a problem.
So I know we were talking about note-taking. There's, you know, I think every investigator has got their own views about handwritten laptop, audio recording, video recording. You've talked a bit about that. I know some people like myself could never do handwritten notes because no one, including myself, could ever understand them. Uh, but they will type them out, print them, and get the, the interviewee to initial or make changes or corrections before they leave the room, which is really what you want. Is you don't want the person to leave uh, without confirming your notes of what they said. Is that, is that fair? That's absolutely fair, yes. And um, also it, it continues that rapport-based um, strategy and that, uh, that continuum and that, um, that management of the conversation you have there too. Um, should there be any follow-up with respect to that investigation, you've left that door open and you left them comfortable with that, right? You're not hiding anything from these individuals. It's being completely open and transparent. Um, and really, it's just depending on the, 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 the environment that you're working in with respect to what the client's going to want and they expect with respect to the documentation of that investigation or that interview um, and what is going to be accepted by the interviewee. If they don't want to be recorded audio or video, then, you know, we work around that. Um, if I know if I write it verbatim, then I'm going to transcribe it hand, uh, in a typed manner for the client to be able to read it properly. And they'll have a scanned copy of my handwritten notes as well. So they're going to know that this is based on the facts that are being provided from the interviewee. So how often do you have people object to audio or, or video recording? Um, I've only um, asked or started recently asking people to do the audio and video recordings. Um, so right now I'm batting 100%. So <laughs> I haven't had, um, and I'm sure I will at some point, but so far, and they've been great. Um, make them feel as comfortable as possible. And as the interview progresses, um, they forget it's there. And so do I. I've had so many people say that to me over the years that, you know, they, they very, you know, as you said, they're transparent. They tell the person I am recording this. Uh, and often they say the person is a little bit uncomfortable for the first minute or so. And like you said, they forget and you get a great, you know, I mean, your, your verbatim notes are obviously great, but I think it's even better to have voice or, and or video is, is the ideal. And that's the standard I'm in the States when they do depositions as they call them in the States, they're all video recorded now. Uh, and so you get, it's, it's almost as good as, as being there as opposed to handwritten notes, which are still more common here, which, uh, you know, it's better than nothing, but you don't get the facial and body reactions or the body language or anything else. Yeah, and, and you get to see it from the interviewer and the interviewee. You get to see how the interviewer is treating the interviewee how if it's conducted fairly and the way that that information was obtained. So there's a lot of extra value to a video recording and to a video interview where the audio is there and everything's captured. Um, I'm not saying that um, I'm not saying that it's not good to handwrite them, but you capture much more on how that information was obtained during the interview. There's less of an allegation of an interrogation, so to speak, like we mentioned right. before. Well, and that's a great point too, is you protect yourself. You know, if, if someone's going to allege that, you know, you bullied them into signing this document, uh, you have a lot more protection if you have a video of exactly what happened. Exactly. And then you're, you also have a video of the conversation management being open saying, look, we brought you in here for this. You understand why you're being interviewed. And then going forward near the end of the interview, you know, how do you, are you okay with talking to us again? Or how do you feel about what's going to be happening next? Or you can, you know, when they ask you, this is what's going to be happening next and so on and so forth. Somebody will be in contact with you, right? So um, yeah. that's captured right then and there. So there's no dispute in, in, in at the end of the day. 
Yeah, and I think that's really important. So uh, one more thing I'll ask, and then I probably should uh, let you get going. And I'm laughing. I'm looking uh, in the background. I see Windows update has finished, so we're all good to go again. Uh, but we'll finish this off on uh, on my Chromebook. Credibility. You know, like I said earlier, I mean, a lot of the investigations that I am dealing with now are allegations of harassment. There's often no documentation. There's no video. There's no independent evidence. It often comes down to the complainant and the accused, and there may not be much more. So what do you do? How do you assess credibility at the end of the day? Um, I think that goes back onto historical, uh, like history with that employee, that balance of probabilities with respect to both individuals. Um, do we want to bring in a sort of character background into that? I'm not sure. Um, but that's going to go down to, again, a really good interview and trying to figure out the culpability and the, the, uh, the validity of the statement that they're, tr that they're, that they're giving you. Um, and, and sort of assessing the, the, the past employment records of this individual, how long have they been there? Is this something that sort of just come up and it was a, a lapse in judgment? Uh, was it something that they've been hiding for a longer period of time that we just didn't know about? Um, or is the, is the, uh, the, um, the complainant um, of the character that would do something like this um, untruthfully and sort of just to place blame? Like, what's the culture like there? There's a lot, that environment is very unique and yeah. it can be very challenging to, to navigate. So I don't know that there's a cookie cutter answer or fast and hard and fast answer to that question because it's it's really hard to say um how i would handle it is look at the balance of probabilities and look at that historical value with respect to both individuals right. and then come up to you know here's what i think um based on what i've learned so far this is what i think have happened and this the you know the evidence strongly suggests that this did occur or right. the complete opposite but again, it's hard. Uh, it, it's it's hard to go about that um, if there's nothing there to to corroborate it with respect to that position or video evidence. It is one thing I often say to people is if you're taking on the the job of of investigator, that's your mandate is to reach a conclusion. And, and you made a really important point there, which is you know this is not a criminal prosecution. The standard of proof is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a balance of probabilities. In other words, what's more likely to have happened or what's more likely than not. So uh, I, I see too many cop-outs where people say I couldn't reach a conclusion. But to your point, I mean, sometimes someone's story will be internally inconsistent. You know, they, they're adamant that it happened on a certain day when it's clear that it could, it could not possibly have happened, happened then. Or sometimes it's just not consistent with your knowledge, with your understanding of, of the world and the workplace. Uh, but there's lots of things that you as an investigator should be using to reach that conclusion as to who is more credible if it's coming down to, a, to an issue of credibility. So that's, again, that's, that's your job. And you're obviously trained at this. You know, where I get concerned is people who are just, you know, it's often HR um, and it's often someone who's never been trained on how to conduct an investigation, let alone interview someone but the powers that be decide they don't want to pay someone externally. So it's added onto the person in HR's desk as to something else they have to do. And they have no idea how to do that. Yeah. And it's not, it's, there are some very powerful and some very, very knowledgeable and, and, and great investigators that do HR. Um, mm -hmm. I've met quite a few of them. Um, but it is like you said, the, uh, sometimes it's rushed too much um, and, and not being 
like having the ability to sort of say, look, I need more time and I need to get at, the, I need to speak with this individual again to really assure and to make sure that I'm right here because I want to make sure I get you the truth and not the answer that you're looking for. Right. Um, so, um, and, and you, you made a good point with respect to that, uh, that sort of that, that culture thing and not get eaten up with respect to the decision or the recommendation you're going to give them at the end that you're not feeding in or you're, you're not making that decision based on the culture and that environment that, that they're operating in. So um, our job is to be able to get the truth, get them that information and help them with their due diligence defense and, and move ahead. And that's all the balance of probabilities. And yeah. And due diligence is probably the, the important point that I should uh, come back to because at the end of the day, if there's ever a court challenge or a challenge before a tribunal, whoever did the investigation is going to be on the hot seat. They're the one who's going to be cross-examined as to what they did, what they didn't do, how they reached the conclusion they did. So you, you've got to be able to justify that. And part of that is good note-taking, good record-keeping, reviewing and reciting exactly what you reviewed in terms of documents, which witnesses you met with. Uh, and that's what I often remind our clients of is, you know, it's a report doesn't just mean a conclusion. It actually means all of the evidence and reviewing exactly how you got to that conclusion, uh, that's because that's how you need to justify and, and basically defend yourself if you're ever challenged. That's correct. Yes. So I think that's probably all the time we have. Thank you for your patience during all of the uh, the technical issues. And I have to say, Eric, I said it before we started, I love your background. I've been holding myself back for the last 40 minutes of, from talking about hockey, um, which we'll have to do another time. But uh, thank you for joining us. And for anybody who wants to learn more about Eric and Argus, Argus Research Group, check out argusresearch.ca. Uh, and Eric, thanks again for, for joining me today. Thank you very much for the invite, and I look forward to future discussions. Absolutely. We can talk about uh, hockey and then maybe some investigations as well. That's all the time we have for Season 2, Episode 10 of Fire Away. My apologies again for the technical glitches, but my thanks to Eric Paré for uh, soldiering on uh, and completing the episode with me. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. Our next episode will be on Tuesday, December 17th, just in time for the holidays. And we're going to be touching, touching upon some of the issues that the holidays raise in the workplace, including issues of inclusivity, issues of holiday parties, how to manage liability, all the things that come up at what is supposed to be a very happy time of year, but can cause some very significant issues in the workplace. That's December 17th. In the meantime, if you have any questions, feel free to email us at info at rudnerlaw.ca. Reminder, past episodes can be found on YouTube, on our website, and on archived on Facebook. Uh, if you like our page or subscribe to our channels, you get notifications when the episodes are live. I will invite you, as always, to keep in touch with Rudder Law throughout the month, not just every month for Fire Away. Check out our blog, our social media pages, and sign up for our newsletter. But as usual, I will remind you that none of that, including our show, replaces legal advice. As I always say, if you think that you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. So don't hesitate to contact us, and we'd love to talk to you and see if we can help. Thanks to Rob, uh, especially today with our, our challenges and uh, Windows updating in the middle of the show. Thanks to Rebecca and Mark. And lastly, thanks to, to Eric for joining me and to everyone for tuning in. Have a great day.